Good afternoon, friends. Welcome to another grand and glorious day in the best little city in America. Of course, that can be none other than Sioux Falls, South Dakota. How about uh, we spend a couple hours here on the Patrick Lally Show engaged in some energetic and entertaining conversation on local, state, and national news and politics, as we always do. But also, today we'll talk a little bit about uh, history, literature, poetry, you know, that kind of thing. It's going to be a gas. Uber producer Dan Peters is in studio with us today. Thanks for spending some time with us on your radio at Information 1000 KSO, streamed live on the KSO.com website or the KSO mobile app. Of course, the one-touch streaming. We are live on Facebook as well at the KSO page. And you can follow along as Dan monitors and feeds the Twitter beast at P. Lally Show. The Twitter beast. It is, it is an insatiable animal, this Twitter, this thing, this social media in which we all uh, enjoy is maybe too strong a term. Uh, exercise our rights, uh, uh, get into, I don't know. It's there. We all use it. Get on at P Lally show. Uh, Dan, uh, I said I was going to jazz fest last week. Yes. I ended up going both days. Whoa. Well, I, I was working the, uh, bike valet on Friday, Friday evening. And that was fun. A lot of people riding their bikes to Yankton trail park to catch the music. Friday night was Jimmy Vaughn. I was there till about nine-ish, loading up bikes, just one right after another. Pew, 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 pew. And it's tough, you know, because you got to get some information. You don't just take somebody's bike and say, see you later. You got to, you know. Got to tag it, man. Right. You got to tag the bike. And you got to write down what kind of bike it is and that kind of thing. And so you gotta, we got a pretty good system going there, but it gets backed up a little bit. And you got to keep moving, keep moving, running around, bikes. Because, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it with enthusiasm. So I was running. I was getting my workout in while also being the bike valet. But it was it was beautiful out there and a lot of great people, good music. Um, had a lot of fun. Ate some uh, Nacho Supreme, which wasn't the best idea I ever had. While you're running? No. I ran over there, got some nachos, and uh, ran back. But, it, you know... Really a fabulous operation out there, the Jazz Fest. Smooth. We had Rob Joyce on last week, and they've been doing this so long, they can do it in their sleep. Just smooth. So I was impressed. I had a good time. Uh, and then Saturday, we ended up going back. The uh, Put the uh, nine-year-old and the seven-year-old on some bikes. We made the journey. I was a little skeptical. It's about four and a half miles one way. Mostly bike trail. But I was skeptical. Uh, but they, they were troopers. They made it. It was no problem. A few stops. We had to take a rest break. Roll around in the grass a little bit. <laughs> well, one of us had to take a rest break. All right. It was me. I got tired. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Uh, but it was uh, a great. And then we ended up staying way later than we thought. Like, you know, we went over there like at 3. Figured we'd be back about, you know, 5.30. Cause, but... Uh, bouncy house inflatable stuff got all that you got the uh, uh, theatrical uh, presentation from the pavilion people and it just one of it started seeing people we know people come by pretty soon 
9 o'clock. Sun's going down. And I uh, got to get the caravan back on the road. And I, I had concerns, again, but uh, got a bunch of lights. I had lights, loaded everybody up, and uh, it was a kind of an adventure. So there, the lesson there is, you know, just take the journey, right? And you have to make sure that the reward is at the end of the journey <laughs> for the seven and nine-year-old. Yeah. Well, uh, when the nine-year-old saw inflatables, he kind of lost it. Boom confetti. Yeah. Boom confetti. Exactly. Come around that corner on the bike trail there. Uh, I yanked a trail by the one parking lot on the east side of the park. And it was like, hey, they got inflatables. Woo! Beeline right towards the inflatables. And not even realizing that they had just ridden four and a half miles no, on a bicycle. Was, that was gone. And then, uh, uh, but, you know, they've, okay, they didn't have such things. You know, I say this on this program a lot, just fill in the blank. They didn't have blank when I was a kid. Well, they, you know, these bouncy house things uh, have come quite a ways. So it's like a, uh, there's an obstacle course. Uh, there's stuff in there. I mean, they just, I don't even know what's going on inside most of that stuff, but there's one where it's, you basically, it's jumping off a cliff and you climb up the, the chute and you're up probably, I don't know, six, eight feet. And then they jump down into this pit kind of thing. And it's just, I've done it. <laughs> really? Oh yeah. Yeah. In fact, we, 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 I think we had an apparatus similar to that at our church's vacation Bible school last year. Because we set around we set out a, a budgeted amount for sure. to have some inflatables for our family night gathering, just a oh, place yeah. to kick back. And that was one of the that was one of the that was one of the uh, I guess you got the disciplines. Yes. I and I didn't know I can adults I would have done it if I had thought an adult can do it. I did it. How'd it go for you? Oh it was fantastic. What sort of uh, approach did you take? You kind of do a belly flop kind of situation or just on your hinder no no not a belly flop not a cannonball <laughs> but but basically it's it's one where where i just kind of kind of lean my head back i yeah. i you jump out yeah and then then my legs go straight perpendicular uh, parallel yeah. parallel to the ground and lean back just a little bit kind of land on your backish yeah, yeah on a on a hinder and then just kind of end up in a v formation oh, yeah i would have done it i that maybe wouldn't have gone so well though of course, I remember, I remember climbing seventy-five foot silos when I was younger. So heights don't bother me. Yeah, but and there was no cushion at the bottom. No, I did not jump off of seventy-five <laughs> foot silos. I did not jump, but I remember I was up high. Why did you have to climb up those things anyway? Um, uh, there are some when when you have to, when you fill them up. Yeah, you have to. There's a there's a, a hatch on oh. the top that you have to open up at the Got top. It. You'd think you could do that with some like a some sort of mechanism. Yeah, but if it if it if it actually rains and oh. and moisture gets that's not a good thing. I so see. You have to double check to make sure it is sealed. Uh, otherwise, you got to dry it and it costs extra money. Oh yeah, you don't want to do any of that stuff. No, definitely not. Well, we have gone right from jazz fest to farming. That's the way that things <laughs> roll here in this first segment of the Patrick Lally Show. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. Uh, anyway, we had a great time. And we're coming home, you know, it was kind of dusky, getting dark. It was fairly dark. And the fireflies are out. The fireflies right now are fantastic, especially if you're down by the river anywhere. Like For on the sure. Greenway. 
Oh, it's just a, it's a light show. And so it was kind of magical. Maybe they'll remember that kind of thing when they're older. You think? It's very possible. I hope so. Remember that time we went to that concert? They had inflatables. Fireflies. Fireflies. Yeah, no, that ain't going to happen. Uh, we have a great show for you today. Uh, local author and Augustana University writer in residence, Patrick Hicks, is here and uh, ran into Patrick, oh, last week, a couple weeks ago, maybe. And uh, had a nice time, nice conversation, and uh, said, we got to get you on the show. So now he's on the show. So there you go. The Buffalo Maiden will report in from the Black Hills Bureau on Weird Friends. And I'll have a P&L statement just after the next break. Speaking of farming, trades, tariffs, and the trade tariffs, and the congressional delegation. That's coming up next on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. Oh, sure, getting a little closer to free here on the Patrick Lally Show at 3.20 on Information 1000 KSOO. And uh, you know me, I like trade, I like tariffs, I like talking about this stuff. And uh, looking through the uh, news recently, a lot of stories coming up in the local media now about uh, the effect of the tariffs on farmers and, uh, you know, a lot of people talking about how bad it is and uh, that the tariffs are costing South Dakotans money already, which is true. And uh, certainly you've been hearing about these issues uh, on the program since since this program started, frankly, because uh, a year ago or so when uh, in June, when we started the Patrick Lally show, you know, we were we were firing up for the Trump administration. And uh, obviously there was a lot of conversation about trade deals as we went into the election and coming out of it and. Uh, that was right after we got out of TPP, and we were uh, talking a lot of bad things about NAFTA. And, uh, you know, you just didn't hear much from the delegation because, you know, they had a new president from their party. They're all Republicans, which is fine. That's the way it works. Elections have consequences, as we like to say. Um, but I, I, I thought it was interesting. And then a couple of uh, last, uh, earlier this month, I think it was, our delegation Senators John Thune, Mike Rounds, and Congresswoman Christy Noem penned a very strongly worded letter to the president about trade. Because this is serious now, all right? Uh, when Trump, during the campaign, was talking about all the terrible trade deals, I don't think anybody really expected that what we were going to end up with was a full-fledged trade war with China. And there's a lot of conversation about uh, from our delegation about, oh, boy, you know, this is we, we're, we're going to give the president some leeway here. You know, he's we, we we know that there's some people taking advantage of us out there. And, and, and I really support uh, I really support getting tough on some of these things. Uh, but then it became all about China. Right. And. Uh, putting tariffs on the Chinese steel. OK. Because you're trying to help out the manufacturing, the, the steel workers, right? Apparently. But as it turns out, that's going to end up costing manufacturing a bunch of money. So we're losing all kinds of jobs. And that's fine because that's manufacturing, right? That's the Rust Belt. No, but of course, 
the Chinese, being the Chinese, they're not dumb. So they say, oh, well, we buy a lot of soybeans from you guys. We're not going to do that anymore. And you can say all you want about what the Chinese have done to us in terms of intellectual property, and these are legitimate points. They still buy our soybeans. So if you're going to go pell-mell down this road, you have to expect that there's going to be a pushback, right? They're just not going to wilt. They don't have to. And I've said this over and over. So now this week, the delegation. So last a few weeks ago, they sent the letter. And this week, they all have their weekly columns because uh, when you're in Congress, what you do is you write a weekly column. Well, they don't write them, but somebody in their staff writes a weekly column. And uh, then you send them out across the state. And uh, I, I see they usually get posted. Uh, our friend Pat Powers at the Dakota War College blog, he posts these uh, every week. And uh, that's where I see them. But they go out across far and wide across South Dakota and are, are published in various outlets, including pretty much every weekly in the state. So they have, they have sway. These are important. Um, and I, you know, as I read them, uh, there's a commonality here. Here's John Thune. Uh, Washington, D.C. shouldn't make their line of work farmers more difficult by doing things like shrinking market access around the world. Unfortunately, though, I believe current U.S. trade policies are doing just that. Really? He continues, newer, improved trade deals would grow, help grow the agriculture economy and be positive development for producers who continue to face low commodity prices. Yep, new deals would be good. We don't have any of those. Uh, I'm worried, though, that the U.S. agriculture community is facing unintended damaging effects from the current direction the administration has taken on trade and tariffs, however well-intentioned they might be. In particular, I'm concerned about the retaliatory action we're seeing from other countries that have quickly identified agriculture as an easy target in the trade war. I'm also concerned about how loss of market share over the long term from which the negative effects would outlast the immediate volatility we're seeing in today's commodity market. Well, I'm, who's surprised by this? I'm not. And there's a, there's a common theme in from Mike Rounds and Christy Noem. Oh, they're just, you know, our agriculture is an easy target for this. It's really not about... Of course it is because they buy... China buys... Billions of dollars of American soybeans. We export a lot of soybeans. And China's like, buys a third of them, third of our exports. Mexico's big, but China's huge. So we're already losing hundreds of millions of dollars because of the trade war. And Trump over the weekend, I believe I saw this over the weekend, the president said he's willing to go to 500, which means... Uh, Five hundred, I think it's five hundred billion dollars in the value of all the trade from that we that that we buy from China. He's willing to tear off the entire thing. What do you think they're going to do? Not buy? They're going to say, "Oh, oh no, that's okay. We'll we'll spend our money. You don't. That's fine. Put tariffs on all our stuff. We're not going to do anything." So this sort of deferential attitude, I think, is, it's, it's done. It's over. This sort of inherent faith that our delegation had in the Trump administration, which you got to give them a chance, I get it, out of the gate. But 
the president has never indicated for one moment that he understood the implication of what was happening because of these tariffs. There's no roadmap. His representatives have gone to, gone to Senate in, in front of questions and said, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know where this is going, but we're going to do it, by God. In his column, Mike Rounds talks a lot about how the economy is so great. And you know what? Things have been going along pretty well. Steady growth over the long term. And you can attribute whatever you want to President Trump out of that, and that's debatable. And tax cuts and, you know, getting rid of all regulation. And maybe that is growing the economy incrementally. It's a fine argument. But he's burning it down on the other side. Burning it down. So it's lovely that our delegation has begun to be concerned about these things in some sort of public way, but they better get on their horse pretty soon because it's not going the direction. It's going the other direction. Your strongly worded letters are not having any effect. And that's the bottom line on today's PL statement. Agree or disagree with me, you can email me, Patrick at KSO.com. Uh, follow us on Twitter and uh, chat with us there at P. Lally Show. Always fun. After the news and weather with Mr. Dan Peters, we're going to chat with oh, Buffalo Maiden on a Monday. That's going to be awesome during Weird Friends. This is the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. 335 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. Town on a crippled horse. He got fired from a cattle drive up north. The ropes of the gallows was swinging in the breeze. All the wanted posters had pictures of me. I got my club 45 right by my side. And it's uh, 3.30, so it's time for our weird friends. Now, normally on Monday, you know, this, none of these schedules are hard and firm, but normally on the, on the Mondays we have the common man when he can make it. Uh, common man's out of the country, and uh, but the Buffalo Maiden is in country and uh, is gracious enough to join us today. Buffalo Maiden, thanks for being here. What do you mean out of the country? They're out of, they get to go out of the country in the summer? He went to Ireland. Oh, okay. I don't know I if I can it. say that. Well, nobody knows who he is, so yeah, common man's in Ireland. Ah. That's fair, nice. isn't it? Who goes to Ireland in the summer? You're supposed to go in the off-season when there's nobody there, and then you have more fun. Really? Yeah. When's the off-season in Ireland? Uh, I would probably say uh, late uh, September, October. It's still nice there, right? Oh, my gosh, yes. But okay. never in my life have I ever been so cold as I was in Scotland. So yeah. all those countries are just cold. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Although we're getting cold, too. We're going down. You guys are going down. We're going down in the 60s to the highs. What? Summer's over, man. It's done. We're over. Yeah, it's true. It doesn't last very long out there. No. <laughs> speaking, no. Speaking of warm weather, though, I, what now, I don't really understand this, and I don't know if it's true or not. I just saw some vague reference that you won a trip to Hawaii. What? I won a trip to Hawaii. I know, I know. So um, I uh, these people, they came in, they were selling raffles for uh, 25 bucks Friday night. So I'm like, you know, it's a donation to the Custer Youth 
an alumni foundation. How mm-hmm. awesome is that? Yeah. And I might have been one of the last ones they sold. I'm not sure. But um, I hope they sold out 250. So anyways, they called me last night, and I won. I won a trip for two to Hawaii. So what are you doing next week? Uh, I'm all in. I'll clear my schedule. Okay. Can you book sure. it that fast? Okay. Uh, no. I decided <laughs> not to go. What? <laughs> I've already been to Hawaii. Oh. You know, and there's a little bit of a volcano action going on over there. I guess the tourists are kind of half-priced, but... Um, that's true. I, uh, I opted for the cash so I can give back to the organization. Well, so, so, so you get, you would just get a cash payout instead? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to give them some cash back. And then I don't know if you're aware of this, but Custer is in the process of building a dog park. Now it won't be like the one in Sioux Falls that was over a half million dollars. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we, you know, we're close, but we're not quite there. Yeah. So I'll donate money to that so we can get this dog park going. But they're doing a naming contest. So if you can do the naming contest, I don't know what you win. Probably nothing. Maybe a hot dog. Like what? Uh, naming, like, Fido's Run? Or, I mean, what do you yeah, call the yeah, like, Custer Dog Park, right? I know. I'm like, what are we, well, you know, maybe we should keep Custer out of it. But um, yeah. I don't know if he was a dog guy. Oh, he kind of was, I think. The, oh, the I'm actual sure. Custer? The yeah. actual cutter, yeah, yeah. Time to come up with new names. <laughs> Fido's last stand. Um, yeah. The <laughs> the uh, why? I, well, first of all, why does Custer need a dog park? The whole place is a dog park, right? I mean, because it was kind of you know I've been pushing for it, and then we had these. We're redoing our uh, city parks. We're trying to be more like Sioux Falls here in yeah, Custer. I understand. So we're doing our city parks, and we're putting a lot of investment into the city parks, which all three of them, maybe four. And um, and one of the things that came up during the meetings was people were interested in a dog park. Now, how awesome is that for all the tourists that are coming by? Mm, that's like the, the the hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar camper I just passed yesterday with little Fido scratching up the windows, barking at us. <laughs> um, they probably would enjoy a little dog run. So I think it'll be awesome. I mean, every city, I think every city does well with a dog park. You know, I think probably in most cases. Uh, dog parks are good places for people to let their animals run around and, and do their business and sniff each other and all that. Yeah. In Custer, it's more or less, it might be a little taller fence. Uh, it's to keep the other animals out. <laughs> yeah. Keep the deer out. Pretty soon the fawns and the dogs will be running together. Well, and the, and Which, the, by the way, there's a set of twins up on my parents' property that's the fawns, and they are just having a payday with all of this. You know, we've had all this rain, and yeah. they're, like, running around like crazy. They're just awesome to watch. But, you know, so. don't you guys have the pumas and such? Do we the, have what? The mountain the mountain lions, the pumas, the cougars. Don't you have those around We there? got those mountain lions. Yeah, oh, man, they're everywhere, right? That's what they say. Yeah, so but, I, think, um, I think this is a good way to protect uh, these people's little toy dogs when they come through from getting <laughs> turned into yeah. lunch. Yeah, right. Hey, but did you see we have a bear out here? There's... What? There's a bear in them there hills. We got a bear out here. You're kidding me. What Some, kind of bear? A black bear. Some uh, artist was setting up his cameras to take, you know, whatever, motion cameras to take pictures of wildlife. For yeah. And uh, he, he has a bear on, on the camera. No kidding. That's and just one more. And social media, of course, is like, where is it? Where is it? And, uh, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's your next question, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, is it in but, the Custer area, or is this in the greater Black Hills? Yes, it is. Both. <laughs> yes. Thank you. It's in the greater Black Hills. So you, you um, just don't want to say, nobody wants to say where it is, because then everybody will go looking for the bear, right? Well, 
Well, and, I mean, come on, you're never going to find it. But it's uh, up by Rochford, which that makes total sense. Sure. This is just one more now thing. Now that I, I say Rochford, half the people, or the four people listening, or the half the people listening aren't even going to know where Rochford is. So <laughs> I've been good. to Rochford. Well, you took me to Rochford. Uh, I know. It's awesome. That's where they do that the Sunday afternoon. Yeah, it was great. I, I loved yeah. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but uh, this is, this is though, when I think about this, okay, oh, there's bears in the Black Hills. Oh, that's great. Because if there's, ah. one, if there's one bear, there's more bears, okay? It's sort of like the puma. And now when I'm out there on my bike, if I'm on a, a, a little trail somewhere, maybe the Mickelson or whatever, all I got to worry about now is what's going to jump out a of the bear. trees and eat me. Now it's a bear. Now right. it's a bear. Yeah. yeah. Well, like you said, it's not just a bear. It's a, probably a family of bears. But, um, yeah, I would be, you know, I mean, you have to be a little bit cautious out there. I guess there's only been a couple of uh, mountain lion sightings on the trail that I've seen, you know, that people are posting. Oh, they don't, you don't see them, but they see you. Right. Oh, yeah, they see you. <laughs> yeah. And they're but some hungry. people have seen them. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they take people's pets and such, and that's not good. It's not good. No. The, uh, no, but yeah. I did see but. a bear, though. I, I came face to face with a bear, only it wasn't in the Black Hills. It was in western Massachusetts, right up there by Vermont. Huh. And it was ah. a big, old black bear. And um, I was concerned. So I that's that's interesting news for you people there. It is. It's pretty exciting, I think. Well, keep uh, keep Nora inside. Yes, yes, she'll be fine. Well, she'll be at the dog park. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Nora's hey, kingdom. I, uh, you know, what we haven't talked about. You warned us about gold digger days, and I'm gonna oh. we're gonna come back and talk about how the gold diggers went in uh, just sure. a second, right after this break. Okay. This is the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. Lipstick bathing beauty queens uh-huh. But you don't see them, do you there? 347 on the Patrick Lally Show. Information 1000 KSOO. We return to our little chat here with the Buffalo Maiden from the Black Hills Bureau. Uh, and uh, we've been talking about Custer, the dog park, all kinds of good stuff. But you had told me that you have something called Gold Digger Days. And <laughs> that. That yeah. seems odd to me. What is a gold? Well, now, don't tell. It's called Discovery Day. Oh. Uh, yes, because remember, gold was discovered just not far from here, yeah, uh, Custer. Uh, and so um, that's, it was the 95th annual uh, celebration of Gold Discovery Day. That's crazy. So, I know. And these women, 95 years ago, started this uh, celebration, and they wanted to incorporate, as they say, the indigenous uh, people and the uh, gold gold people, the, the gold diggers, I guess they're called, and um, and have a celebration surrounding, uh, going around it. And now it's evolved into, there used to be this pageant. I think you and I talked about the pageant. Oh, that's right, we did. And then, uh, but now it's just a parade, and there's some basketball, three-on-three basketball games, there's three dances, you know. But the street dance started, and the rain came in with a vengeance and wiped it all out. So. Ah, kind of a washout no for the weekend. I, it was. That was too bad because that's, you know, that's the only, my one night out and uh, <laughs> for the year. So I was all excited, man. I was ready. I even had a cooler. I couldn't even bring your own. So I even had a cooler I could strap on. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that's it. Now I'm done. I'm over. Oh, it's back so. to the, back to the grind. Well, that's too bad about no, gold digger days. I know. I know. 
was a bummer, but now we got to gear up for the rally, right? Because that's starting next uh, next week. <laughs> it doesn't start till the middle of August, does it? No, no, no. It's the seventy eighth. It starts on August third. So we are today is what oh. the twenty third. Oh, so, so it it's ten next- days. Well, because everybody shows up, so it's coming on Thursday, you know. Which, by the way, is my parents. Don't forget, it's their yeah. 60th wedding anniversary. That's amazing. And Are... what's really funny is they honeymooned out in the Black Hills 60 years ago. And, you know, there's sort of, I, I don't know if I've taken you to the place where there's the original park entrance to Custer State Park and no. the road, the original road. No. Uh, well, I'm, I probably won't take you there because you'll put it on Facebook. But... <laughs> But the, the original, uh, the original pillars to the entrance of Custer State Park. Um, so I don't know how long ago the road changed, but when mom and dad drove out here from St. Paul, it was a two lane road. So they drove, to, oh man, can you imagine that? In 60 years ago, 1950, yeah. whatever it was, 1958, is that right? Or is it, yeah. 58, yeah. 1958. 1958, they. There was no interstate, so they had to take, like, two laners all the way from St. Paul. That had to take, like, three days. I know. And then when they got, they went to the Passion Play. Do you remember that? Yes. Spearfish? Yes. And my mother remembers they both fell asleep because it was such a beautiful night. <laughs> <laughs> well, not much has changed, huh? And they had to go, stay, well, the Passion Play is long gone. They had to stay in Belfouche because there was no place to stay in Spearfish. There was no room in the end. Well, there probably were very few inns, weren't there? Probably, yeah. Although that, they, what's that lodge. place called? The Blue Something Lodge, where the blue, so they got those little motels there. They're very quaint. Yeah, they are. They're very sweet. Well, that's amazing. Very so sweet. now, 60 years later, they're having yeah. their uh, wedding anniversary back in Custer. Uh-huh. Yes. That's and, all, and we're not doing anything until later uh, because, you know, I'm a little busy right now. But... Um, uh, plus, it's an incentive for them to stay together longer. Um, <laughs> Hold it together, right? people. Yeah, stay together, man. You've made it this far. No, they're awesome. <laughs> they're awesome. It's quite a feat, 60 years. You it, and I will never make that. No, but uh, too yeah. late. Um, yeah. Uh, Jan and Ray, they yeah. they are amazing people. Not only have they been married 60 years and yeah. uh, hanging out in Custer, but they live like they're, you know, 30 years younger than they are. Yes, they do, yes. With the biking yep. and the hiking and the, uh, the, the and snowshoeing. The and the kayaking, yes. It's just the amazing. snowshoeing, yes. They are an yeah. example for us all on how to, you know, grab life Enjoy by life. the horns. Yes. As my father always says, life is easy and people make it difficult. So I have to live by those words. Life is easy. Yeah, and I make it difficult. Um, yeah, you kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's that's outstanding. You have to you have to tell them congratulations for me, okay? Well, you're supposed to put. So I put something up. This is how people pay attention. I put something up on Facebook. No party. Please just send a note or a well wish or maybe a card or something, a nudge on their day as a surprise. Yeah. And, uh, everybody's like, oh, I can't make it. Uh, can't make it to what? We're not having a party. <laughs> we're not having a party. Nobody reads anymore, Pat. No, and these are like classmates of ours. Nobody reads. Yeah, you're like, oh, I can't make it. You, I didn't want you to come. What are you talking about? Well, good. I don't, we're not doing it. What am I supposed to do? I have lemonade and chips if you show up. And my parents will probably be out kayaking. So yeah. I don't know. Don't well, come. Maybe we can get all the listeners out there in, uh, in, in KSOO land. 
to send a and just send a little nudge, a little note to the uh, to their little website or their Facebook because they share it. I think. Yeah, they have this um, Jan N Ray G at GWTC dot net. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I'm going to do that right when I get off air. I'm going to send them a note. Okay. Because send them a note. I, I well, love Jan. Wait for their anniversary because it's supposed to be a surprise. Oh, don't not today. Yes. Don't not today. Not today. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't know. Okay. Well, all right. Well, you uh, can plug the restaurant because that's why we uh, Safe Creek Grill, downtown Custer, in our 20th summer. We are gearing up for our 20th motorcycle rally. Man. Well. And let me tell you, these guys aren't looking as good as they were 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> it was really fun back then. Things are taking a slide. Uh, Buffalo yeah. Maiden, thank you very much and try not to work too hard, okay? Uh, okay. Talk to you next week. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Coming up after the news and weather, or in the news with Dan Peters, I always say that. Then we'll have Sam Gabrielli from uh, KSFY Weather Center, Severe Weather Center, in to tell us how things are looking for this week. And then uh, we will chat with Patrick Hicks, the art writer in residence at Augustana University. This is the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Fifty-eight on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. Coming up on Wednesday, January 25th, local foods fair from 3 to 8 at the Stockyards Ag Experience at Falls Park. A family-friendly event that includes educational talks, food demonstrations, food demonstrations, samples, kids' activities, food trucks, live entertainment, wine and beer tasting. Oh my. For more information, go to the events calendar at KSO.com. Coming up after the news at the top of the hour, we're going to chat with Sam Gabrielli from KSFY Severe Weather Center. Then we will have in studio Patrick Hicks, writer in residence at Augustana University, and we'll talk about a book he's got coming up. It's very, very interesting. This is the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSO. Four fifteen on the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO, and I am happy and uh, excited and honored to have in the studio with me today Patrick Hicks, who is the oh, and this is this is like the greatest title ever. He's the writer in residence at Augustana University. Patrick, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. My first question has to be: How does one become the writer in residence. <laughs> well, it sounds like it'd be a, a, a secret ritual or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, there the really wasn't. The first writer in residence was uh, Herbert Krauss, and he helped found the, well, actually didn't help found, he founded the Center for Western Studies at Augustana. So he was the first writer in residence and held that title for something like 30 years. And when he retired, um, I, I think that he was so well-respected, the title kind of went with him. And, and then uh, a young punk me shows up in the, the early 200s, uh, 2000s, and uh, they resurrected the title and, and gave it to me. Well, that's pretty cool. So how did you, what was your connection to Augustana? How did you end up at Augie? 
Um, did you get that title when you walked on campus that day, or how did that work out? Oh, that's a good question. No, I did not get that title when I walked on campus. Uh, I'm originally from the Twin Cities, and then um, I moved to Europe for about seven years and uh, had some adventures over there. I uh, met my wife. She's English, and we moved back here when I got the job at Augustana. Uh, I'd never been in Sioux Falls until the day I had my uh, job interview at Augustana, and I fell in love with the place. It's a remarkable institution, and I'm, I'm really proud to teach there. Uh, and I'd been there about five or six years, and I'd been writing a mm-hmm. lot of poetry, fiction, that kind of thing. And it seemed natural to maybe revisit and resurrect this title because um, I'm doing a lot of writing and I'm teaching a lot of creative writing. Yeah. So you, what you teach creative writing, English. Yeah. Uh, like how many how many classes do you have to teach these days to be a, a full time uh, college instructor slash professor slash Yeah, yeah. It, well, it varies from institution to institution, but um, I teach three courses a semester. So, and that includes creative writing courses, Irish literature courses, British literature courses. I teach uh, sort of a course on the Holocaust, um, the Great War. We'd call that World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I have a, a variety of different interests. And how lucky am I that I get to teach these things to, you know, very very bright young men and women? And uh, you, the, the what's interesting um, as the writer in residence then is you're not you you're writing a lot. I uh, am so. Uh, they kind of gave you that title because you're writing a lot. But why um, you could just kind of sit back and teach those classes, right? You don't have to be the writer in residence. Why do you <laughs> continue to uh, publish? You have 10 or 11 books, yeah. uh, uh, poetry, uh, fiction, st- short story collections. You kind of do it all. Uh, that's got to be hard to maintain that kind of writing schedule and teach because it's not a part-time gig. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is definitely not a part-time gig. And, and during the academic year, I usually go into work at 6, and I don't leave until about 6. So it's a 12-hour day. And, and even during the summer when, you know, everyone else is out uh, enjoying the sun, you know, I'm usually in my office for six, 6 to 7 hours a day writing. In fact, I was in my office today for 5 hours working on some new poetry because um, I have a new collection coming out in March. Uh, but before it can be published in March, I kind of need to write the poems that are in the collection. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was working on today. I, I, I have great love of writing, so it's it's not work to me. How did you end up as a – I mean, you're a poet. You started as a poet, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you told your parents, I want to be a poet, <laughs> you, I, I know other people who are actually uh, poetry teachers, and, and it's always seems like a, uh, a hard path to finally end up there, even if you always knew – that was the goal. Was that true for you? Oh, absolutely. It's it's really uh, challenging. You have to be very self-motivated to be a writer of any stripe, be that poetry or fiction. And I started off as a, a fiction writer. That was my first love. So, you know, when I was six mm. or seven years old, I was writing short story collections. And, you know, I, I always loved writing fiction. And then I realized that I needed to boost up my publishing credentials. So I thought, well, maybe I'll try my hand at poetry. Uh, and I'd seen a guy read his poetry on stage, and I didn't think his work was that good. And I thought, well, <laughs> surely I can do better than that. Um, and like so many careers, uh, things can begin with just jealousy, I suppose. So I seem to have some talent for poetry, but I, I feel like fiction and nonfiction is really – that's my wheelhouse. That's what makes me really happy. And where'd you, you – you're from the Twin Cities. Where'd you go mm-hmm. to school? Tell us about how you came to be a, 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 a professional writer. Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in a small little river town called Stillwater. Um, it's actually it's beautiful town. It's gorgeous. I mean, I, while I was growing up there, I couldn't wait to leave. You know, I didn't understand why all these tourists were coming to Stillwater <laughs> at all. I just wanted to, to leave. So 
Uh, but what a blessing it was to grow up in that that wonderful little place. And my parents still live there. I go back regularly to, to visit them in the town. Um, I went to St. John's University in central Minnesota. And, uh, Fine school. They gave me a remarkable education. The, the monks uh, just did a fantastic job giving me a, a great education. And that really gave me the confidence to go and explore the world. So I moved to Chicago for two years. And then from there, I, I became an Irish citizen uh, in the process. And because I had that passport, that EU passport, it meant I could work anywhere in Europe. So I thought, well, I'd be foolish and stupid not to make you know as much of that as I can. So, so I moved to Europe for about seven years. And uh, uh, this was uh, something I was going to ask you for. How how is it that you have this dual citizenship in Ireland? I know it's yeah. a thing; a lot of people have it, mm-hmm. but there are you have to be you have to be qualified for it at some degree. How are you qualified to be a dual citizen? Uh, by the <laughs> the dumb luck of my my mother having been born in Northern Ireland. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, my mother uh, she was born and raised in Northern Ireland, and she immigrated to the states. Um, well, she met my American father and moved to the states. Uh, so Northern Ireland was always, you know, grew up with relatives there, and my mom still routinely goes back to Northern Ireland. In fact, uh, she's going back in about a month, and she'll be there for about three months visiting family and things like that. So because she was a, an Irish citizen and a British citizen, um, the Republic of Ireland, because they had what's called the brain drain, there were so mm-hmm. many people, young people, leaving Ireland, they thought, well, maybe we could get young Americans to move to Ireland. Um, and what happened in my case was I did that. I did move to Northern Ireland for one year, but then I moved to Germany and Spain and, and England. And because of the laws, I was able to work in those countries. Uh, that's very uh, fortunate that you could do that because you can travel, right? Yeah. And you can learn and see and absorb. Where did you live in Northern Ireland? I lived in Belfast, and I lived in Belfast um, during the Troubles. Uh, so because my mom is from Northern Ireland, I grew up with – the, the, the Troubles, this slow-burning civil war, which had existed mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland from 1969 until the peace agreement of 1998. Uh, and I lived in um, Northern Ireland from 94 to 95, and I happened to live there while violence was happening, but peace was just beginning to, to come on the scene. So it was a remarkable time to be there. And you went to St. John's, so I assume you're Catholic. Yeah. That had to be interesting being... A Catholic minority, essentially, in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Was that, what was that experience like? And as, as peace is coming, you, you're, you must have had some sort of sense of hope and yeah. a, 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 a community, a sense of community with other people in Northern Ireland. But living in that as a, as a Catholic minority, what was that like for you having lived and grown up in the United States? Yeah. And gone to St. John's of all things. <laughs> well, it was my first understanding of, um, uh, terrorism, for sure, and living with terrorism and with um, a repressive state and the police state. It was the first time I'd ever lived with something like that. It, it totally transformed my politics. But although I'm Catholic and Patrick, I mean, can you get a more Irish name than Patrick? I'm not sure you can. <laughs> but my mom is Protestant. Oh. Um, and, you know, she names her firstborn child after, after a Catholic name. My father's Catholic. So whenever I went to Northern Ireland, uh, when I lived there, and certainly I'd, I'd gone uh, to the place several times before I moved there, all, all, almost all of my relatives are Protestant over there. So it was a very interesting experience for me being there because I was aware of this patchwork quilt of all of these political entities and the ghettoization of Protestants live in this area and Catholics live in this area. And I was able to um, move across those borderlands with some ease because I, I knew people in, in both sides. 
That's a fascinating story. And you, did you want to stay longer or had you kind of had it with that climate in terms of the political and social climate? Uh, wow. Again, that's a fantastic question. Well, I'd finished up my degree at um, Queen's University, Belfast. I got a master's degree there, um, and I fell in love. And, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a girl. It's always, it? <laughs> yeah. So um, she was German, and uh, we moved to uh, we moved to Germany. So um, I taught English as a foreign language in Germany for a year, and uh, then ultimately moved back to England. That's amazing. Um, we're going to come right back and talk more with Patrick Hicks. He is a, the writer-in-residence at Augustana University. He holds dual citizenship in the United States and Ireland. He's got a, a book of poetry coming out in March, and we're going to talk about uh, a recent trip he took uh, in Germany as research, correct? Yes. For your, for your next book of fiction. Yeah, one of the concentration camps. Yeah, it's a, a fantastic story. We're going to come right back with Patrick Hicks here on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. 432 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOL. We'll get back to the weather here real soon. I'm getting a, I'm getting a very nice, congenial look from Uber producer Dan Peters right now. These things happen. They do. It's live radio, man. What is the weather, Dan? It's nice. <laughs> it's going to continue to be nice. That's awesome. That's your weather. That's your forecast. Yeah, there's not much too more, not much more than that. It's going to be nice. 83 tomorrow, sunny, fantastic. Perfect. Perfect. There you go. And uh, thanks to uh, Dan Peters for the weather there. We're going to return to our conversation, however, with Patrick Hicks. He is the uh, writer in residence at Augustana University, and uh, he has a book of poetry coming out in March, uh, another collection, and also. You, when we ran into each other the other day, we were talking about uh, you just got back from Germany. Yeah, and uh, this is interesting to me. You uh, were we're at a concentration camp during research uh, for your next book. Is that do I have that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So uh, tell me again about the camp. Which one is it? And it's very interesting because it's not anything I'd ever heard of before. It's a camp that uh, doesn't show up on people's collective imaginations as much as it should, but it's called Ravensbrück. That'd be the German pronunciation. You might hear me call it Ravensbrück as we as we talk about it. It's about uh, 50 minutes north of Berlin by car or by train, and it was a camp uh, just for women. Uh, and it was uh, established in 1939, and uh, up until its liberation from the Soviets liberated it in uh, April of 1945. Up until that particular period of time, the span of six years, it was predominantly women were in that camp. And I n- never would have uh thought that was the case but in um like who were these women were they was it uh all jews or what was the purpose of this camp yeah you know one reason that i think Ravensbrück doesn't you know isn't flagging up in a lot of people's imaginations and maybe the name itself is new for some of your listeners i think it doesn't fit the model of what we understand the holocaust to be because it's a, a camp predominantly full of women it's a camp predominantly full of political uh, prisoners, you know, women that were uh, communists or social democrats or uh, maybe they were lesbians or prostitutes. Um, or in some cases, the, their husbands just got tired of being married to them, so they had them shipped off to, to Ravensbrook. I mean, really heartbreaking um, th- things to consider that, that brought some of these women to Ravensbrook. Uh, and it was not an extermination camp. Uh, 
until the last and final year, and then they did they did put a gas chamber at Ravensbrück, uh, and there were not that many Jews at Ravensbrück. Uh, most of the Jews that were there, they were um, they were taken out by 1942, and euphemistically, as as they called it, sent to the east, which meant you know only one thing: they were sent to Auschwitz. Oh, so man. from 1942 onwards, there were there were there were Jews at Ravensbrück, but very very few, and. So they, uh, when you say they brought in uh, extermination or a gas chamber, then they did. They were exterminating uh, people of all stripes, uh, yeah. women primarily. Yeah. Um, so these these women didn't escape the uh, the Holocaust because they weren't Jewish. I guess is what my question is. They were killed along with everybody else. They were, and you know, as repulsive as uh, Nazism was. And is because we see a resurgence of it in in our own country, which we could certainly talk about. But as repulsive as Nazism is, you know, we we have a place like Auschwitz, and the Nazis could tell themselves ideologically that they were murdering all of these people for some ideological reason. But at Ravensbrück, there was no ideological reason to murder these women. They were only murdering these women to make room in the camp for all of the new prisoners that were coming because Ravensbrück is so close to Berlin as the borders of Germany began to shrink because of the Allies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that meant all of the camps that before they were overrun, they had to send them somewhere. So they were sending them to Robinsbrook. And that meant that space was needed. So they would just arbitrarily you know, choose a number of women and, and murder them. Um, and yet while that's happening, uh, these heroes uh, in, in Sweden, they're organizing these Red Cross buses to take women out of and save them from Ravensbrück. And in my research, some of the things I've discovered is, you know, we would have these Red Cross buses come into Ravensbrück and maybe a thousand women would be taken out. Uh, and then that same day, they would just start the gas chambers up again. I mean, it's just like it's so it's so hard to fathom. And although I'm studying this camp, it's it's hard for me to make sense of it. Yeah. So you went there in uh, June. Mm-hmm. Um, how long were you there? I was there for three days, three full days, um, thanks to a grant that Augustana gave to me. I, I'm just so appreciative that Augustana, I, I wrote out a proposal and they said, yes, this looks like an excellent use of funds from the college. So Augustana paid to send me over there and everything. And I got an awful lot of research done, but it was three days and three nights. Did you stay at the camp? I did. I um, I found out that Ravensbrück is unique as far as I can tell. I've never seen anything else like this. But the SS buildings, the female SS buildings, because it's a female camp run by SS guards, um, who were not actually in the SS. They were called Avzeren, but they're female SS guards for all intents and purposes. I didn't know there was such a thing. Uh, there, there isn't. You know, the SS is a patriarchal organization. Uh, women aren't allowed. So, um, although I'm, I'm going to call them F- SS guards. They're, they're not technically SS guards, uh, although they ran the camp. They're called Avzeren, which is like matron would be the closest English word. But they built. Uh, you know, they, these women had to sleep somewhere. These, uh, these women that were guards, and they were just as brutal as. The their male counterparts. Um, These buildings were only six years old when the camp was liberated. Uh, And when the Soviets took over um, and liberated Ravensbrück, they used it as a military base. So they preserved these buildings. And in 2002, um, with the blessing of the Ravensbrück survivors, these buildings were turned into uh, a youth hostel. So I was actually, this is unbelievable to me, but I was actually able to spend a night in one of the rooms that one of these Avzeran guards would have used. And I went to bed only 200 yards away from the crematoria. 
I can't imagine sleeping. You know, it would make for a far better story if I told you that I was restless and I couldn't sleep and it, I, I got, it spooked me out. And while those things are true, it, it was very unnerving being there. The truth of the story is, un, uh, <laughs> I just have to be honest, I was so tired. Yeah. I mean, I spent, I spent the whole day walking around this enormous camp. It's so huge that when I finally put my head on the pillow, it was, I was yeah. out. What do you look for when you're when you're there yeah. in a, in a this camp and you're there because you're writing a novel? Yeah, are you just trying to absorb it? Tell me about that process. What are you looking for? What are you What are you doing in that moment? That's that's a I, I love this question because it gets to the heart of what writers do. Which um, I think the the idea of what a writer is is that we sit at a desk and we hit the we pound the keys and you know boom we've created something and that's that's only a part of the story it's a very tiny part so while i'm walking around the camp um i have this moleskin book which i've got in your studio right now and i just would write down anything that would strike me as um interesting and i know that's a very unsatisfactory answer to give to you but you know one answer that uh, one sort of example i can give to you that i think might help explain uh, what I do is while I was uh, in this uh, this area where the Avzeran were staying, they had a, a board up where they had black and white photos of the real life uh, camp guards. Now I'm looking at all of these women, and they look so normal, and um, except for the fact that you know that they're SS guards or you know in charge of these camps. And there was one lady who was just so affectionate in her black and white photo with her dog. The, the the dog that would also do awful things to the prisoners, as you can imagine. And then I found out that um, each one of these Avzer, and they had to go to Berlin and undergo a two-month training course for their camp dogs. And I thought, wow, they they would be so close to these dogs. They would show these dogs, surely, they would show these dogs affection they would never dream to show to the camp inmates. Mm. So, you know, I wrote that down. And, and I know that's going to become a paragraph, maybe a full page in, in the novel sometime in the future when I actually sit down to write it. This, uh, you, this is not your first novel about uh, the Third Reich. No, no, it isn't. Uh, you, you're, you have a previous novel, and the name of it now is, escapes yeah. me. Tell me what that um, is. It's called The Commandant of Lubezec, and um, it's uh, out in, it's in Kindle. It's uh, out in print, and it uh, was turned into an audio book just last month, which I'm really pleased about. Uh, and that takes place in a death camp, not a concentration camp, a death camp or an extermination camp in Poland. And it's largely seen through the eyes, but not exclusively seen through the eyes of the camp commandant, who's far more interested in making his camp as efficient as possible. That's part one. And then part two is seen through the eyes of, as it should be, seen through the eyes of the prisoners that are there. I saw a um, a liner note uh, written, I think, by Tim O'Brien, yeah. who wrote The Things They Carried. Uh, it's from originally from Worthington's guys from great books. Uh, I, he said something about the banality of evil. Yeah. And I, I, that reminded me of that when you were talking about the, the guards and their dogs. Like, this, yeah. they seem so normal, right? Yeah. And yet, it's, it's it, the evil that lurks within all of us. I, I don't know how that happens, but it's... That's what I want to explore, you know, because I've looked at violence from um, the masculine perspective in the Commandant of Lubezic. We understand the Nazis and the whole concentration camp system is such a such a violent masculine undertaking. But yet these female guards, these Avzeren that were at Ravensbrück, and many of them went, then went on to places like Auschwitz, um, they were just as brutal. 
But the prosecution rate at, at Nuremberg for the women was far higher, and I have no way to back this up, but my hunch is that it, the prosecution rate for the women was far higher is because it was just so abhorrent to assume that women could assume the level of violence that a man could. And there's no reason why women can't be just as violent as, as men. We're all human beings. Yeah, yeah. We're going to come right back after a short break and talk more with Patrick Hicks. He is the writer in residence at Augustana University and uh, working on a new book. And uh, we're going to talk more about writing and his cool job right after this. This is the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. 447 on the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000 KSOO. And we have in studio with us, and uh, quite happy about that, Patrick Hicks. He is the writer in residence from Augustana University, and uh, we've been discussing his his last book, his next book, um, and uh, both of which uh, the common the, the last one's the Commandant of of Lubezich. Lubezich. Yeah. Lubezich. And uh, tell me, so you've got these two books, uh, both set in and around uh, concentration camps during World War II. Uh, you're a you're a guy from Stillwater with dual citizenship in Ireland who spent a lot of time. Why the Third Reich? Why you know what's there? There's been so much written and yeah. there's so many uh, pieces of whatever kind of literature or, or or film or all these different things. Why pick that? Yeah. Uh boy, that's a good meaty question. I want to I want to honor it by giving it a a, a good answer. Well, we'll have um, you back tomorrow. How's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sold. Um, no, go ahead. I, I have this weird uh, feeling that, uh, and I know this sounds kind of airy fairy, perhaps, but I believe stories choose writers. I don't believe writers choose stories, and I know that perhaps some of your readers, your listeners, are maybe rolling their eyes at that. But you know, if you think of your own life experience, things happen to us that um, we didn't choose. So, for example. My wife and I, we couldn't have biological children of our own, so we adopted a beautiful little boy from South Korea. And because of that, I now care very deeply about Korean culture and Korean politics. And, you know, so I didn't really choose that story. I didn't choose, you know, because of something that happened to me, I have this new sort of thing I'm interested Mm -hmm. in. Which you've written about. I have, yeah. Yeah. Adoptable. My last poetry collection was about adopting him from South Korea and what it means to be an adoptive parent and, you know, how sort of complicated and beautiful that that whole thing is. But with the Holocaust, I've always... I've always been drawn to it. I remember watching uh, uh, old documentaries on PBS when I was really young, you know, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, and maybe maybe you can see the images of the bulldozers and the bodies. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was just horrified at a young age that that is what we are capable of doing to each other. Um, and that thought has n- never left me, that that's what we are capable of doing to each other as a species. And then as I grew up, I would always hear, you know, never again. We'll never have uh, uh, the Holocaust or a genocide again. Well, and here I am. I'm, I'm approaching my, my, my fifth decade on this planet, and there have been five genocides in my lifetime, in, in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, clearly the Holocaust is a way for me to revisit the past so that maybe we can help frame what's happening right now, you know. Who knows what's happening in North Korea right now? They have concentration camps in North Korea. Who knows what's happening in Syria right now? I mean, no one is really in there. We do know that there are a lot of people dying, and there might be some type of auto genocide that's going on, much like we saw it in Cambodia. Um, 
you mentioned Cambodia, and it's one that comes to mind when I tick off the genocides in my head. And that was a case, too, where nobody really knew what was going on. Yeah. And even now, people don't have a, a, a passing understanding of the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. Who are still, the Khmer Rouge exists today. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be a little bit like Nazis still, which they do. I mean, there still are Nazis yeah. out there. Yeah. But not, how, how does trying to write about it inform how you talk about it to other people? And do you think there is, for lack of a better term, power in that? I do think that there's power in talking about and reading about, I think there is power and extraordinary energy in fiction to begin with. Because fiction is all about putting yourself into the skin of another human being and seeing the world through their eyes. So in The Commandant of Lubezetsch, if I can get readers to dream along with me uh, and to sort of step outside of their own body and their own understanding for a little bit of time and sort of imagine what it might be like to be Jewish in an extermination camp. I I think there's great utility in that. I I mean, how could that not change you, I think, in some some important way? Does it consume you when you're in this process? I mean, you because right now you're you're deep into it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and And the answer is yes. I mean, I um. I've talked to other scholars of the Holocaust, and I'm not alone in my thinking here. Um, I I see things, and it just reminds me of the Holocaust, whether I want it to or not. Um, trains on the prairie is, an, you know, an obvious example. A less obvious example might be um, if I'm on, you know, I've the TVs on, and I'm sort of, you know, using the remote control to kind of click between stations, mm-hmm. and I see the Yankees are playing baseball. You know, their uniform looks so much like the mm-hmm. uniforms in, in Auschwitz. So. Um, you know, a smoke coming out of a smokestack. All of these kind of things, they, it, it, it's hard. I, I, you can't really shut it off, I think. Uh, do you know what your next book's going to be called? The Ravensburg? I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet. Uh, and it's um, so close to me right now, I'm afraid to publicly yeah. say the title I'm right. thinking about because then it becomes real. And I can't change <laughs> it. You can't yeah. change it, right? Yeah. So what, where are you in that process? Uh, you know, are you you're writing right now? I you're have still researching. Yeah, I am. I've got the the plot of, for about half of the novel. I've got the characters figured out. I know exactly what the first 100 pages are going to look like, at least um, from an architectural standpoint. Meaning, I know what chapter one should look like, chapter two should look like. I, I just need uh, to find the time to sit down and write it. My my first priority is to get this next poetry collection finished. And off to my publisher. She's expecting it in October, and she needs it. <laughs> so we can probably find a, a lot of your work by just getting on Amazon or what have you. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Hicks, H-I-C-K-S. Yeah. Um, uh, Augustana Bookstore, anything like that where I can get a hard copy? You can, just... Augustana, um, okay. you know, Zambros and Sioux Falls, uh, at good, good bookstores anywhere. Awesome. Patrick Hicks, he's the writer-in-residence at Augustana University, and uh, we're very happy he's been here, and you're going to come back. So I would love it. Right. I had a awesome. great time. Yeah, this <laughs> was fun. Uh, we're going to come right back here and uh, talk more about what we'll have on the show tomorrow and finish up, so stay close. This is the Patrick Lally Show, Information 1000, KSOO. Four fifty-eight on the Patrick Lally Show. Information one thousand KSOO. Interrupting all 
and coming up this weekend, starting Wednesday through Sunday, they like to get their party on down in Canton. It's Celebrate Canton, Depot Day on Wednesday at the Depot Museum with Mini Train, Farmer's Market, Ice Cream Sociable, Inflatables, Classic Car Display, and Music, Town and Country Day on Thursday, all kinds of stuff there, free watermelon movie night on Friday at Jack Fox Park. Oh, geez, Saturday, it's jet, there's pancake feed, there's cars, there's everything all weekend. Learn more at uh, KSO.com. Coming up on the show tomorrow, who's on the show tomorrow? Oh, that's right, Weston Christensen. He's a professional triathlete from South Dakota, and he just started. That'll be cool. Stay with us. Information 1000 KSOO.